Welcome to CBO Speaks, the official podcast of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO John Walda, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to have chief business officers reflect on their careers and offer personal examples of how they have navigated difficult situations and learn from their experiences as a CBO. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBO Speaks. Thanks so much for tuning in. It is a pleasure to be here with you today. My name is Megan Strand, your host, and I am very excited to be joined today by Brian Gutierrez, Vice Chancellor for Finance and Administration at Texas Christian University. Hi, Brian. Hi, Megan. How are you? I'm excellent. Thanks so much for being here today. Brian, you've been with TCU since about 2005. Can you tell us the story about how you landed there? Oh, it's an interesting story. Um, so I was at the University of Texas. I was an associate vice president and controller at uh, UT Austin. And uh, I started getting some headhunter calls. And uh, one call in particular was for the University of Hawaii system. They had a strong interest in me. I did interviews, did video interviews, eventually flew out there. Um, Ultimately, uh, there was a desire to offer me the job. But the process in Hawaii um, takes about, I think it's a 30-day through the legislature and then another 30-day wait. So it's like a 60-day period before they can offer you a job. They can tell you they're, they're interested, but there's some sort of uh, process you have to go through that's very public before um, any hire, any, any job offer can be made. So um, as I was waiting, um, TCU had a position open, uh, which I didn't know about. And I got a call from the headhunter on that particular job. And he said that uh, he would like to interview me, but I told him that I was waiting. I didn't have a job in hand, but uh, pending all the public approval process, I would expect that I would have the opportunity to um, go to Hawaii. And he said, well, um, why don't you just at least fly up to Dallas and let me talk to you and meet you, and maybe some other time we'll work together. So I thought, well, no harm nor foul just to, just to talk. So I went up there and talked, and we, we, we spent some time visiting. And after a couple of hours, um, he thanked me, and, and I was on my way back home. So after the visit with the recruiter up in Dallas, I was driving back to the airport, and he called me and he said, hey, I know uh, that you're in this process with Hawaii. And we confirmed that he confirmed with me that uh, that I was waiting on the public process to complete, but didn't actually uh, have a job offer. So he said, "Why don't you come up and visit with the committee at TCU and and let's see what happens." So I came up and I visited with the committee at TCU. And on my way back to the airport uh, from that visit, he called again and he said, uh, "The chancellor would like to have you uh, meet with him." Um, can you bring your wife, plan on meeting with the board, and then the next day after the meeting with the board, um, plan on uh, having a, a meeting with the chancellor. So my wife and I flew uh, back up to Fort Worth and, and visited with the board. It was a great visit. Um, next day I met with the chancellor and he offered me a job. This was uh, still 
in that 60-day period waiting to hear back from Hawaii whether I even had a job there. So I, of course, called the University of Hawaii and said uh, to the president how sorry I was, but the process, uh, you know, obviously was, was, was quite a lengthy process, and he knew immediately um, when I called uh, why I was calling, and the first thing he said to me was, we took too long, didn't we? <laughs> and so I told him what had happened, and he said, you know, after um, you get to TCU, I'd sure like to talk to you about how they move so quickly. And literally within 10 days, I was interviewed and hired by uh, TCU. Wow. So your your career path might have taken you to a tropical island. It sounds like, yeah, lots of demand for, for you. It nearly did. And, and I have to tell you that... Uh, a few of my kids never updated their Facebook profile, and so uh, eventually their friends found out, and they all said, well, how come you're in Fort Worth? I thought you all were in Hawaii, and they were just, they were so um, bummed about not being able to go to Hawaii, but it worked out because Fort Worth is home for Angela and me, my wife, and and uh, TCU is a great place to be, and, and this is, you know, it's just been a wonderful, wonderful uh, opportunity here. So you have a master's of public administration. When, when you were studying um, for your advanced degree, did you go into that thinking that you wanted to, you had your sights set on the CBO role? Actually, I was uh, an associate um, vice chancellor for business affairs at the Dallas Community College System. And um, in fact, I might have been a vice president transitioning to the associate vice chancellor role. Okay. So while you were getting your master's, that's where you were. That's right. Okay. And, so uh, yes, you were down that road already. <laughs> uh-huh. And a, uh, uh, the chancellor at the time, Bill Wenrick, uh, and I were talking and I, I, I said to Bill, what, what do you think I should do for graduate school? And he said, well, whatever you do, you're already a CPA. Um, choose a graduate degree that... Uh, potentially will round you out. And so I looked around and came up with the public administration um, degree plan and and uh, went back to Dr. Wenrick and he thought that that would be a, a, a very wise choice for a graduate degree. So I completed the master's and I completed actually quite a bit of the doctoral work and ended up leaving probably with uh, four or so courses to go to go to work for the University of Texas down at Austin. So it was a good experience. And the rounding out um, that Dr. Wenrick was talking about had to do with, um, you know, the highly analytical side of the CPA versus the policy and, and organizational piece that uh, a degree in uh, um, a graduate degree in public administration would offer. So you started out your professional career as a CPA, is that correct? Correct, at Deloitte. And how did you then end up where you, with the career trajectory that you ended up on, how did you jump from CPA to CBO? Well, higher education was not something that I had targeted at the outset, but I had targeted something in the not-for-profit sector. Mm-hmm. However, upon the advice of good people such as my father and and others, uh, the counsel I was given was go into the private sector, learn uh, as much as you think you need to before you go into the not-for-profit sector. And so that's what I did. And I was in public accounting uh, for four busy seasons and had an array of clients, but still in the back of my mind and in my heart, I knew that there was something in the not-for-profit sector that I was really – just sort of attracted to. 
And uh, I looked at airports, hospitals, and schools. And right before um, I was leaving for a graduate school interview, I got a call from Cedar Valley College, which was a small college in the Dallas Community College system. And they had asked if I would come in and interview for their CFO position. And that's how it all started. So when you think back to those early days um, in the CBO role, what sorts of skills were you most heavily relying upon? Boy, that's a great question because um, coming from public accounting, I had an opportunity to see so many different businesses, high-tech, uh, manufacturing. And when I mean high-tech, I mean manufacturing using high-tech principles and and really great organizations um, with with you know, clearly defined roles. And, and then I also had uh, some not-for-profits and, 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 and I saw sort of the challenges that many of the not-for-profits faced. And I kind of found myself sort of trying to blend all those different experiences and, and pull from, from those different experiences to help me through my first years in, in higher education, because I literally faced, um, budgetary issues, um, marketing issues, uh, technology issues. I mean, everything you can imagine uh, for a small college and, and what it might be facing, that's what I stepped into. But I found that as I drew upon other experiences and the great thing about higher education is there's so many people who are willing to uh, mentor you and, and give you guidance. There were great people that I could pull upon uh, for, for uh, insight and, and, and uh, to a certain extent guidance. Um, and I had a great president. Uh, she was, uh, Dr. Spencer was a great, great uh, friend and, and mentor as well, who really, I think, just primarily thought the financial skills that I possessed, my native financial skills were, were what she felt were most important to the job and that uh, everything else would sort of fall into place. And it did over the years. And, and by taking sort of a fresh view at some of the challenges uh, that the college was facing, I think I offered some fresh solutions as well. When you think back to that first role, what was the most challenging for you? It sounds like you had a really solid financial background, some really great mentorship, but what what did you find personally challenging about the role that you had to sort of grow into, I guess? That's a, that's a, a great question. And for, for somebody just hitting higher education, especially coming from the private sector, um, I'd say the biggest challenge that I face and I see others facing is sort of the shift from um, private sector culture to higher education culture, which uh, tends to be more inclusive and tends to be, uh, you know, obviously it's a shared governance model. And, and so decisions take a little bit longer um, uh, to, to develop and to reach. And I think I struggled with that, with that pace. There were so many things that we needed to accomplish um, to be able to, I think, meet everybody's expectations in terms of where they wanted the college to be. Yet there was um, there there were so many people and committees, and you know the amount of time that it would take to to get where we needed to be. At first, it seemed like a like a sort of insurmountable proposition. How do you get so much accomplished in the time frame everybody wants amidst the committees and the different aspects of governance that exist within 
um, a college environment. But I found that um, once I became acclimated, again, with great mentors and so forth, I began to adjust to the pace and um, achieve what we were uh, expected to achieve, but working with uh, all the givens of those committees and, and shared governance and so forth. So it was a great transition, and it was um, it was it was it was one of a um, uh, certain challenge for sure. When you think back on your entire career, because you know we we've been mostly talking about your early career, but certainly you've been in the industry for for quite some time in the university setting. What would you say has been a really big aha moment for you? I think probably um, working with Dr. Bashini here at Texas Christian University, the aha moment came when um, I think I, 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 in the early years here, I began to understand um, how important it is to uh, read how people are feeling and um, sort of the in-between-the-lines conversations um, about the pulse of an organization. Um, so it, it was, it's, it's really sort of an intangible um, set of skills that uh, uh, Dr. Pashini was really helpful to, to me and helping me sharpen those skills. And I talked a little bit about it at CBO Speaks with regard to emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. So um, I would have to say that, that you know, that's probably the one thing as I, as I progress through the years, uh, in leadership that there's probably helped me the most. When it comes to emotional intelligence, what are the things that you have learned or that you try to teach others? Well, specifically for myself, I've learned, you know, to, to sort of read myself better, read how I'm, um, internalizing uh, whatever it is that I'm uh, I'm I'm working through, whether we're on a major construction project or uh, a specific financial um, challenge or or an organizational challenge, just sort of understanding how I'm viewing it, and then reflecting that against how others might be viewing the certain situation that we're working through, and and then trying to trying to line those up, line those up in terms of how uh, the way I'm feeling about a specific project and what I'm sensing is lining up with how other others are feeling and sensing. And that sensing part, I think, is really critical. It's just sort of, you know, what are the, for example, the obstacles that I'm seeing and what are the obstacles that others are seeing? And, 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 and are those obstacles such that they're, they're causing, uh, they're, they're, their emotional reaction or their personal reaction is it is it supportive or is it um, detracting from where we're all trying to get and and the same thing for myself are my emotions um, detracting or contributing to where we're trying to to get to and I think that when you when you begin to unpack how people sense and feel about situations you begin to realize um, what is shaping everyone's reality or view of uh, whatever it is you're trying to solve. And so it, 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 I think it allows you to see more holistically about what you're trying to achieve and, and, and takes you beyond uh, a project uh, management point of view. 
So you said that it's important to be sensing and and not only your own emotions, but other people's emotions. So talk a little bit about the language you might use with somebody who you know is maybe not on the same page with you. How, How do you get to that underlying, you know, either emotion or concern or challenge if they're not necessarily offering that to you. In in certain cases, folks are trying to achieve something and they're unable to achieve what it is in their mind they want to achieve. Um, and it begins to well up and, and become somewhat frustrating. And so I think it's important um, to, to understand what it is that has an individual frustrated or has them sort of... Um, you know, the mental block that keeps them from progressing through and accomplishing whatever it is they're setting out to accomplish. And once you, once you understand that level of frustration and, you know, is it because they're being told they can't do a certain uh, activity or, or pursue a certain path, or is it because they can't get a decision, you know, understand the points of frustration and then, you know, how they're internalizing that. That's, from my perspective, that's real important. And then um, help sort of sort of relax them through the project, if you will. In other words, um, oftentimes, I know in my case, um, I want to go, go, go. And it's easy to lose perspective over what's really happening. And so uh, I've recently, I asked a colleague, I said, can you tell me uh, you know, we were we were kind of in the middle of this whole angst about what um, this individual was struggling with, and I said, we just I I just sort of backed up and I said, can you tell me, um, look back five years ago, and now look forward to where we are today. Are we better off or worse off than we were five years from five years back under your leadership? And that person said. Oh, I think we're much better. And I said, I absolutely agree with that. I think we are much better off. And I said, do you think all that happened the first year you were here, the second year you were here? And eventually we concluded it was a continual climb over the last five years. I said, okay, now let's look forward and let's think about what you're trying to accomplish. And remember, we're now looking back as much as we are looking forward. And now... How do you feel about what it is you're trying to accomplish and some of the barriers that you see? Do you feel that those barriers are completely prohibiting progress? Or looking back, do you see those barriers as maybe a series of switchbacks that actually were taking you up the mountain? It just wasn't a straight line. It just kind of took you a little bit longer. And so, you know, when we sort of got through all that, I think his perspective and the way he was feeling about uh, where he was and the challenges that he was facing um, seemed to change. And, and uh, I, th- I think it made a difference. And that so that we sort of worked from the inside out. And um, then, you know, also w- we talk about what time means and time can mean, a, you know, something different. It's, I hate to use the phrase, phrase but time is relative. Mm-hmm. If you have time to matriculate change, you should take all the time you can. There are certain situations where you don't have time. It might be because of a financial crisis or otherwise, and you have to compact and, and that's going to stress the culture. But if you have time, 
You should use time as one of your greatest assets so that you're able to bring the organization with you. And um, again, that's something that I think I've learned uh, over the you know last 20 years in higher education. And certainly I've had great people along the way uh, help me realize that. That's really fascinating because you had said when you first got into the university setting, that was one of the most challenging things for you was sort of the pace and the time and the time, con- it, just the difference of that. And now it seems like you've really embraced that and are using that to your advantage. I'm trying to do better. A colleague, <laughs> a colleague of mine once described me as, as like a uh, tire on an airplane when it hits the runway. <laughs> there's, there's quite a bit of steam when you first hit that runway. Um, but no, I am. I'm, I'm really trying. And, and I have to tell you, it's a challenge um, here at TCU because we are just we're doing an amazing amount of work in um, a relatively short period of time when you think about all the different things that are going on here. What are you doing now that you never imagined you'd be doing 10 years ago? Oh, my goodness. Um, You know, one of the most interesting things that I probably just, I got glimpses of, but I didn't really develop the appreciation for it uh, until I got to TCU. And that has to do with addressing the space of a campus and the space that it might need relative to its existing community. So TCU has the Colonial Country Club on one end um, of the university where, and I don't mean exactly adjacent, but that's sort of the, it's, it's, it's just blocks away. Uh, it's a PGA stop. It's a, it's a, it's a very, very, um, uh, great uh, asset to the Fort Worth community. And then um, on the other end of campus, we have a lot of housing. A lot of our students live uh, in and around the campus as well as on the campus. And as you start thinking about the future needs of the university and you start thinking about making sure that your university com- uh, community remains strong from it, whether it's economic development or or neighborhood relations, you really spend a lot more time thinking about outside the borders, the proper borders of the campus. And I think for whatever reason, I remember um, I was on the West Coast. We were Uh, I think we were, uh, my wife and I decided to travel with the baseball team to the Super Regionals, and we were playing UCLA. We had a day between games or something, so we drove out to uh, USC and spent a lot of time just walking the campus, which is something I love to do. I love to walk uh, college campuses and get a feel and flavor for what they're doing and what's going on. And I began to take stock of how important the broader boundaries are and and USC is a wonderful place. It's, it's, it's got so many great assets right around the campus. Um, and, and, and so as I, as I sort of took stock of USC's situation and what they were doing to strengthen, strengthen their borders, um, in terms of, you know, town and gown relations and so forth, um, I began to wonder if the same principles applied to where, um, where TCU is located, um, from a you know from the perspective of you know how might the university 
play a role in terms of economic development or um, you know business district sort of influence and I don't mean central business district TCU is not downtown it's it's near downtown and so it 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 has a lot of businesses that surround it and so uh, I think that was you know an aha moment for me uh, several years ago and USC is actually introduced far more than when I was there in terms of what they were doing but I've continued to watch it and and take note of of what they're doing and their progress and there's certain things that we're emulating here as well to to strengthen um, our relationship with our with our neighbors and and that takes a lot of time uh, it takes a lot of effort and and you almost are sort of playing this um, sort of quasi development role, right? Where you're you're worried about how your campus is being built out, and then you're also trying to figure out what makes what makes sense and what's going to help the community in terms of uh, where the campus might grow. So uh, you just you just look back uh, on your career and you go, "Wow, I never thought I would be spending so much time." Um, thinking about real estate, thinking about the campus borders, thinking about how the university influences the broader community. Speaking of looking outward, part of your role, obviously, is to kind of keep apprised of what's happening and talking to other colleagues and, and, and the like. What resources do you rely upon either on a daily or weekly or monthly basis to keep yourself up to date on what's happening um, you know, it could be something online. It could be things that you read or things that you do. I think it's a combination of things. For a chief business officer, your head's on a bit of a swivel. There's so many things that you're watching out for. Um, Wall Street Journal for me is kind of how I start my day. Uh, then I drill down into local media through the local paper. Then I back up and I usually um, look at the higher, uh, excuse me, the Chronicle of Higher Education email. And, you know, there's a there's a sort of a blitz of emails that I get in the morning and I just try and quickly scan through to make sure that there isn't anything happening that I should know about, in particular about TCU or just the broader the broader environment. Um, I'm always sort of trying to keep a pulse on what's happening uh, at the national level in terms of tone and tenor regarding higher education and then also within the state. So just, you know, it's it's kind of a smorgasbord of everything and you have to move pretty quickly to get through all that. So you're not really consuming at a deep level um, unless you see something that really, really catches your eye and you say to yourself, okay, this is something I'm going to have to spend more time on. And, and, and you, you, you're either going to get to it later in the evening or uh, maybe on the weekend to sort of inform yourself a little bit better. Well, Brian, this has been fantastic. Anything else you'd like to share that I've neglected to ask today? No, I think your questions have been great. I hope that what I've shared is helpful. Excellent. Well, I've certainly learned a lot and I'm sure that our listeners have as well. You can find out more about Brian and today's episode by visiting the distance learning section of nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks in iTunes so you get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Brian and myself, we'd like to thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of CBO Speaks. Mm-hmm.